Hello and welcome to Calling In Useful Idiots. So glad to have you here. Um, we're going to be taking your calls. We just got people coming in, still joining, so we're giving people some time. Uh, tweet out the room if you want. Uh, that we get, uh, you know, bring in the people who would love to uh, join. I'm just tweeting it out myself. All right. Mate, join us live now. So it's a great time. Should we start? Should we take our uh, thank you, Matthew? Matthew says thanks for the content. So thank you. Uh, we already got callers. So should we just start, Aaron? Let's do it. All right, let's do it. Rob. Hey, can you hear me? Yeah. All right, cool. Hey. Uh, this is this kind of a silly thing, and I know he wasn't even on uh, ABC this week. But uh, have you noticed that Chris Christie got his uh, chair upgraded? Where? What do you mean? Well, normally he like he's got this like industrial strength chair that they have to sit him in because he's a, he's a little bigger. Yeah. But it it didn't have any armrests originally because uh, you know I don't know why, but now. If you see, like, if you see, like, next week, he'll probably show up. But he does have armrests on his chair. And I thought, you know, I thought that was good because everybody else had the armrests. And he was probably feeling left out. And You're breaking up a little bit. Like, every other, every, I don't know, five words, I can't hear the word you're saying. All right. Uh, all right. I'm sorry. Yeah. But I think what you're saying is that he upgraded his, his chair. I, yeah, I guess, I guess ABC this week upgraded it. They put armrests on it where it, it didn't have armrests before. Okay. And it's a it's a much bigger chair. Right. But so uh, things are, are looking up for Chris Christie. Yeah, I just I just let your uh, audience you know keep an eye out for that. You know, maybe next week when he's on or something, he he does have the arm. Like a couple months ago, he had no armrests, but oh wow, they upgraded right. him. So I think it's a step up. Yeah. All that's, right. That's all I want to say, guys. Thank you very talk. much. All right. Thanks Share for talk. that heads up, Rob. Audience. Yes. No yes. problem. You're a, you're you're our, you're a, um set analyst. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Thanks, guys. All righty, Schnarf. Hey, Schnarf. What's up, guys? How's it going? Uh, it's a shitty Monday morning. I, I had actually a question for for Aaron on uh, it's a it's a Middle Eastern question, and I was just wondering what his take is. Um, I was see. I saw a, a report by a couple of different places that there was a woman in Iran who had been stopped by their quote unquote morality police, and uh, from what I can tell, is that it didn't end very well. So what I was interested in is because I know Aaron always talks about Syria. And I know there's an allegiance between Syria and Iran, but I was wondering what his take is on not maybe maybe the the cultural and political underlying elements of the Islamic Republic of Iran in two three minutes <laughs> well yeah look um, internally Iran has a repressive government that's just uh, a fact uh, I know people who've suffered a lot under the government um, dissidents who've had a really, really hard time and, uh, and women who've been stopped by morality police, uh, and, uh, face some really harsh things. Um, that's just true, you know? Um, and, uh, and I, I know people who, who can't go back because of, because of the repression that they'd face if they did or the fear of repression. So Iran internally is, uh, you know, is repressive. Um, I'm concerned with, you know, the role of the U.S. government in uh, in all these places. And the U.S. has played a major role in making uh, Iran the way it is today. It overthrew Iran's uh, first democratic government back in the 1950s. Uh, it supported Saddam Hussein in his war against Iran. It's imposed these horrible sanctions that have um, caused a lot of suffering. And that, that you know, in those conditions give... Uh, rise to repression because you know when you're when you're a government that's being that's trying to be overthrown by the most powerful government in the world you will crack down 
even harsher and you have all the more of an excuse to crack down. So, you know, that's the angle of this that I'm uh, concerned with. So I haven't looked into the story you're talking about of this woman who died, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if, um, yes, it's the case that she faced some horrible abuse, but I, I, I but I haven't looked into, I haven't looked into the details. I think she was killed is what the story is, right? Or oh, maybe yeah, she, not. I shouldn't say that she didn't, she was just in the hospital. I shouldn't say just, I saw that she right. was, Hospitalized, yeah. Ignore, so, so I have one more follow up question, and I'll I'll, I'll get off. I, I guess what what I'm what I'm interested in is this is also so the Iranian the Iranian uh, involvement in a place like Iraq and Syria is based on genuine geopolitical aspirations, but the Iranian narrative. It, it works in, in a way where it sees its Arab neighbors as adversaries, right? And it sees them as, as enemies that have, have, uh, have destroyed the sanctity and purity of their culture. That's probably why a lot of these geopolitical events have really taken place in the underlying foundation. So what I'm also interested in from you, Aaron, is this, is how do the Iranians reconcile like their, their cultural identity their religious identity and their uh, and their relationship with the Arab world, because I feel like there's a lot of gymnastics that take place, um, and there's a lot of rhetoric that's internal and a lot of repression of of like let's say minorities, especially in their southern region where the oil is, where they're predominantly Arab, um, you know. And how do they reconcile all these things? Because it's almost as as backwards as like the rhetoric of the American far right. Like it, it has very deep contradictions. How do you like from you from a from a from a observer perspective? How do you see the narrative reconciling with itself? Well, look, you're asking me about things that I'm just not that well versed in, so I have a limited capability to respond. And I also should say, I've never been to Iran. And, um, you know, I learned from going to Syria that you really, to really be able to opine on a country, you shouldn't just visit there, but also try to live there. And and I really understand its its full history and context, because you have to to judge countries by their history. I mean, it's taken a long time in the U.S. and still a struggle for basic freedoms to arrive here. You know, so every country needs to be judged in the context of its own history, its own context and, and its region. And, and I've, never, I've never been to Iran. So my ability to comment on it is, uh, is limited. But let me say, look, in terms of its foreign policy, when it comes to Iraq and Syria, Iraq was the uh, base for a horrible military campaign against Iran in the 1980s, in which Saddam used chemical weapons that maimed and killed people in Iran. Uh, he caused huge suffering and death. And the U.S. backed that campaign, was on Saddam's side. They armed him for that work. So er, to say that, um, you know, uh, Iran doesn't have legitimate security concerns in these countries and is instead motivated by trying to impose a kind of ideology or, a, a you know, like a theocratic, um, uh, like, uh, um, like, like to try to impose like its own, its own like Shia, like religious theocracy is, um, I think is, is wrong. I mean, it, you know, when the U.S. invaded Iraq, it created a big opportunity for Iran to actually uh, help defend itself and avoid a repeat of what happened in the 1980s with Saddam and actually ensure that it could have allies inside uh, Iraq because Iraq is, is, is majority Shia, as is Iran. So Iran and Iraq basically took advantage of the of the horrible mess that the U.S. created in order to ensure that it wouldn't get attacked again, as it was in the 1980s. And Syria, too. Uh, in Syria, the U.S. was uh, and its allies were empowering death squads that wanted to kill Shia. They wanted to wipe them out. Um, and, you know, uh, also, uh, it was also trying to take and the U.S. in doing that, the U.S. was also trying to take out a key ally of Hezbollah which helps uh, in the resistance against Israel. So Iran had a major stake in there too, which like, which I think speaks to its security concerns and not so much theocracy. I know that when it wages these campaigns, it uses theocracy, it recruits people and it talks about being the, the defender of the Shia faith. But to me in, in looking at places like Yemen, Iraq, and Syria, there's genuine security concerns in, in the way that, 
in the way that Iran acts, especially given the context of U.S. government trying to overthrow it for so many years, if that makes sense. I think that's fair enough. But but then what would you say that would you would you would you say that I'm 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 being far fetched if I said that that Iraq and, and, and Syria, well, not Syria so far so much, but I, let's say Iraq, Iraq has traded U.S. imperialism for for Iranian imperialism, because now the, the most of the most of the facets that govern uh, Iraq are are run by the Iranian proxies. And I mean, we, we've seen these protests and the people are looking for their own self-determination. Do you think that, you know, in a weird way, they're hindering the the organic growth of self-determination on on like uh, on like just a just a local level by by having their proxies and their agenda take the forefront? Well, I mean, I wouldn't go that far. But I don't know enough about Iraq to, uh, you know, reach a conclusion on that. I will say Iran took advantage, as I said, of the climate that the U.S. created by overthrowing Saddam. And so it was it was totally predictable that Iran would then seek to prop up its allies. And it has a lot of allies inside inside Iraq because there's a big Shia population. So, of course, naturally, Iran, having been attacked from Iraq previously, is going to use with the people is going to work with the people that it, that it that it's partnered with and that it and that it uh, allies with to try to create a more stable situation for itself. And yeah, sure, it means Iran does have major influence in Iraq now, but to say that it's only Iranian imperialism when the US is still there, US military is still there, and when um Iraq the and when the Iraqi parliament voted to expel all US troops after the killing of Soleimani uh, on Iraqi soil, which is carried out by the US, uh Pompeo basically said, we're going to take all your money. We're going to freeze your money if you do that. And uh, so that speaks to at least the influence of U.S. imperialism that, that still exists in Iraq today. But has Iran meddled and is it taking advantage? Is it uh, propping up its allies? Yeah. But again, in the context of what it's faced, particularly with Iraq, I, it's to be expected. I, it, it's, it's what I think any government would do. And the question is, um, you know, is it acting in self-defense or is it acting out of imperialism? Well, you know, Iran didn't invade Iraq. The U.S. did. That was the fateful act of imperialism in this century that has caused all the ensuing chaos. And Iran is just taking advantage uh, in the way that it can to help protect itself. That's that's how I see that. Fair enough. All right. Thank you. Okay. And we will take John. Hey, you guys. Hey. Um, yeah, I guess uh, I was wondering if you saw the um, clips, uh, I guess, the end of last week, um, where they were all, all the news media was out there saying, you know, uh, 400 mass graves were, you know, 400 uh, people were discovered in a mass grave uh, in Ukraine that the Russians did this and so forth. And then they showed clips and the clips showed these, you know, graves with each one had a little wooden cross and they were neatly arranged in rows in the middle of a forest, which was also neatly arranged in rows. And um, I thought, gee, I've never seen a mass grave like that. Did you guys see that? Do you have any comment on that? Uh, I haven't seen the pictures of the grave. I mean, I, I, I've I've seen the headlines about it, but I actually haven't looked into that yet. And yeah, that's the latest. That's the latest atrocity allegation against Russia. Uh, first, it was made in Bucha uh, and also Mariupol, and now they're saying that after Russia pulled out of Izium, that there are all these mass graves there. But I haven't looked into the photo oh, it's, evidence. It's- it's astounding because on um, Democracy Now, they had <clears throat> a little bit of a different clip than what I was seeing in, you know, on the other media. And um, they actually showed one that said June 4th, 2022. And if you uh, look carefully at because, you know, Google tends to take you right to the Western, you know, kind of, uh, you know, whatever biases. But if you look carefully and drill down by date, um, 
you, you can find a, uh, a Yahoo News article that, you know, said that there was a big battle uh, where supposedly, you know, the Russians were soundly defeated, you know, in uh, Izium on that date. <laughs> you right. know, so it's like like so many other things, it just doesn't hang together. Yeah, well, that's war. There's so much propaganda during war. And uh, when it comes to Ukraine, basically every single allegation is just treated as fact. And the only time there's any kind of like ambiguity is when it's so clear that it's the Ukrainian side doing it. Like, so for example, the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, it was obvious that Ukraine was shelling that plant, but that, that is not convenient for the narrative. So then the way the U.S. media reported it, it was just ambiguous. Like they're shelling at the plant, but they don't say who's actually doing it. Yeah, I actually was discussing that. I, I think I saw you and uh, Max with Scott Ritter uh, talking about that. And Scott Ritter said how, you know, experts can look at these um, craters, determine the direction that the missiles came from. And, of course, the IAEA said, oh, we, we can't say what direction it came from. So, of course, it leads to you to believe that it's not they can't say, it's that they won't say exactly. because exactly Ukraine. Exactly. John, thank you for the call. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. Rich. And Rich, we can't hear you, so you have to unmute yourself. Can you hear me? There you go. Hey, I'm sorry. Uh, The app jumped out. Anyway, I was was wondering if uh, this was long strategy by the United States with Ukraine and and possibly Taiwan um, to to trap both countries. Uh, Because there are, regardless of what people think, there are people a lot smarter that, that me anyway, that are that are in think tanks and, and some of the places out there in the world that we don't know about that are thinking about these situations. Maybe they're trying to trap um, Ukraine or the Russians into like a, a Iraq situation or an Afghanistan situation. Same way with Taiwan. It's not so much that because they couldn't have underestimated the Russian military like they did. It's impossible for them not to have known. They it's all they do with their time. So. They know Russia's superior military is going to eventually wear down the Ukrainians. Is it after they wear down the Ukrainians and you've got a situation where you have a terrorist situation where you've got internal bombs going off in Ukraine, bombs going off in Russia, possibly down the line in Taiwan? I think Taiwan's probably a different situation, but I'd like to hear your take on that. Great question. What is the actual strategy? Is there a method? to the madness. Um, I think the strategy in Ukraine is, yeah, uh, prolong the, the war for as long as possible. You know, right now, if you look in the U.S. media, like there's these articles in the New York Times and CNN about how Biden is resisting giving Ukraine long-range missiles. And, and the reason they say it is because Biden doesn't want to escalate the war and cause World War III, which I think is probably true. But there's also, I think, the factor where I think there's an interest in the Biden administration in prolonging the war for as long as possible because they want to bleed Russia because, you know, this war is coinciding with an economic warfare campaign, sanctions that are aimed at openly. I mean, this is what they openly say uh, at at destroying Russia's economy. And the thinking there is that that if they destroy Russia's economy, then Putin really is in trouble and Russia really is weakened and um, the U.S. can move in and take control. So I think the aim is to have the war go on for as long as possible so that the sanctions can really bite Russia because they haven't hurt yet. But if you uh, listen to them uh, talk about it, I mean, William Burns, the head of the CIA, he said that, you know, the sanctions are going to work. And when they do, they're going to hurt generations of Russians. That's what he said. Generations of Russians. So not just hurting Russian civilians today, but generations of Russians. So, So that's the plan. That's the aim, at least is to try to really cripple the Russian economy. And to do that, you need sanctions to go to, you know, take effect for a long time. 
and you also need the war to go for a long time. So if I were to guess, I think that's the strategy. Do you, do you think Europe is also a secondary or, or a primary strategy, especially Germany, since, you know, this, this probably all stems from Nordstrom and the natural gas. This, you know, it's all economic. Clinton might not have known much, but he did say, well, it's the economy, stupid. So this is probably all economic in nature. But Russian influence in Europe, you, you can't justify it if they're the ones supplying the primary, uh, the fuel for the for the nation. So is this a double strategy or, I mean, or am I giving them too much credit? Do you think Europe was also a goal to uh, make them more? Uh, passive to U.S. Uh, control or, or oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, look at the campaign. I mean, there's been a U.S. campaign going on for a long time to try to kill the Nord Stream two gas pipeline, right? Why would the U.S. care about killing a pipeline inside Europe, uh, one that helps meet its energy needs? Is because if that pipeline were to have uh, gone online, which it was very close to doing, it was the, like the pipeline was built, uh, then Europe and Russia would have been more deeply integrated. And Russia would have supplied Europe with even more energy. And when you're, you, when you have that kind of relationship, it's very difficult to try to justify war and sanctions against such an important partner. So the war in Ukraine has given the U.S. that excuse to kill that pipeline, which I think was a big... So Putin invading, I think, was a big gift to the U.S. in that respect. And uh, yeah, they're totally trying to cut Europe off from, uh, from Russia uh, Western Europe off from Russia and, um, and the Baltics too, of course. And, uh, and yeah, uh, and basically make sure that Russia is not a, a player, but I just think it's so difficult when you have such a big country, uh, that is right there. And the U S plan of instead trying to get people to take U S liquefied national, uh, natural gas, which has to be shipped across the ocean. It's just, it's crazy, but that's what hegemony makes you do. It, it leads you to really, uh, irrational policies. Thanks. Okay. Liana. All right. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. Katie and Aaron, what you guys are doing is amazing. Thank you so much for bringing awareness to Americans about what American imperialism is doing to our fellow workers on the other side of the planet. And this is a, a systemic issue that really goes back to the ballot box. How many people, um, how, how many of those 2,000 people on your YouTube channel this morning voted for Biden hoping that, that that vote would make their life better? Um, and unfortunately, that's not what we've seen. Um, we've lost abortion rights. We've lost... Uh, EPA regulations, the the day-to-day living for Americans has gotten worse. And the war, I agree with you wholeheartedly when you say that the war in Ukraine is just a distraction to keep Americans from paying attention to the 2022 midterm elections. We have an opportunity right now to vote true progressives into office and help set the stage for a real revolution. And um, there are actually two two states on our border, Texas and Arizona, that have green candidates that are running right now who could make a difference in everyone's lives. And so I just want to challenge your listeners to actually look at real progressives and it takes courage to vote for a pro-peace candidate rather than a pro-war candidate. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's uh, 
I've had uh, Matt Ho on my show. We've actually had him on Useful Idiots as well. And I think you've had him on um, at the Gray Zone. But he's a green um, candidate for North Carolina uh, Senate, I believe. Yes, yes. Yeah. And the Democratic Party um, actually tried to do a couple of very underhanded things. They... Yeah tried to convince the North Carolina election board to throw his petitions out, which was illegal. And if he, if they had gotten away with it, if there wasn't people like you, Katie, to actually bring awareness to the underhanded um, tactics of the Democratic Party, he wouldn't he wouldn't be a candidate right now. It, yeah. And so I, I really I hope that you'll keep um, the focus on what Americans can do versus what we have no control over. Because personally, I can't control anything that's happening in Ukraine, but I can personally improve my neighbor's outlook on life if I am courageous enough to vote for someone who is going to make differences in my community, right? Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. I really appreciate everything you do. Please check out all the progressive candidates that are running for governor in your state. Over. Thanks. Awesome. Okay. Um, alrighty. Let's see. Uh, boot. Hey, Katie and Aaron. Hey, how are you? Good. How are you guys? Good. Thanks. So, um, I guess my thought is just with all these wars going on, you know, uh, you know, ever since I was like in, um, uh, middle school seeing like nine 11, you know, and all these wars ever since like Afghanistan, Iraq, it's just like, it really breaks you up in this generation. And it's just like, it seems like, war is everywhere never ending and there's n hasn't been this real sense of an anti-war movement uh, especially now when you're seeing the left backing ukraine it seems like ukraine's like oh it makes sense it's like oh we got to go defend this and we hate putin and it's like oh syria because you know uh assad's a bad dude he's a bad dude he's like we gotta take him out it's like but it's like why are we still there it's like i I don't know, it just blows my mind, breaks me up, seeing people getting hurt over these things that don't make any sense. Uh, so I guess my, what I'm going <laughs> to so courageously vote blue 2022 or something like that. It's funny. Not going to vote blue when there's uh, all they do is support the wars. It's like they're never going to do anything to stop it. So I guess my two points are... Uh, I, I guess my first question would be, uh, what's the thought on uh, trying to push for rep referendum to ending the wars, or if there's if that doesn't seem suitable about put creating a strong anti-war movement for protest and shutting shit down? Sorry, can you say that your question yes. again? Your last. I got the question. The um, okay. look. Uh, no. So like, yeah, there. There are these Russian plans for referendums in uh, in regions of Ukraine that the U.S. and Ukraine have already said that those are sham referendums and, and they won't accept them. But I do think that if there is going to be a solution one day, there does have to be some kind of referendum. But it can't be uh, overseen by Russia. It needs to be internationally supervised or else it won't have any credibility. Um, like uh, I guess. Sorry like, to interrupt. I just wanted to just, uh, clarify. I, I guess I mean a referendum in the United States oh, uh, in, the US. in the country to end its wars across the world. Oh, well, sure. That'd be great. But uh, I think it's much more likely that we're going to get referendums in Ukraine uh, than we'll get referendums in the U S because, because we don't have that kind of democracy here. And, um, but yeah, that's a good idea. That's a great proposal. And the second thing would be, uh, what do you think about starting or, uh, or know of any groups that are uh, 
really pushing to end the wars across uh, that the United States is pushing across the world that are inside the United States. Say it again. Are there like what major do you know of any groups or those that are starting to build up to create an anti-war movement in the United States to protest against them? Against the wars? Well, I mean, uh, Code Pink just organized a week of action against the Ukraine proxy war. And um, they're very active. And I honestly, there's them and there's the Answer Coalition. Um, these are, I think, the major groups that are left from the, uh, from the Iraq war era where the anti-war movement was so big. Um, but uh, I think that's... And then, and then you have these veterans groups, um, you know, anti-war veterans, but that's it. it. It's not very big right now. It's, you know, Obama really did some, uh, did a really great job dismantling the anti-war movement after he was elected. All the energy of the Bush era was, was pretty much swept away. Yeah, we all need to get on that, I guess. Because um, it's just, just everyone. We just need like, all the people in this chat. Like, I'm seeing the listeners and I can see, I mean, there's so many people out there that are anti-war. We need to get on it. Just not, just we got to stop this stuff. It's just like, why are we spending all this money killing people? It's just senseless. It's, there's so many better things we could do. But, I mean, that's that's it for me. Uh Thank you guys for what you guys do. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Nigel. Good morning, you two. Morning. I really impressed, Katie. You always seem to come up with a good one-liner in the show as you make it uh, fun to listen to. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, the uh, question the earlier caller had for you, Aaron. When you were saying you don't know much about Iran, I was wondering if you had any uh, recommendations for people that do have a background in that. Uh, well, to understand, you know what? There's actually a new book out by a friend of mine. Her name is Asil Rod, and the book is called The State of Resistance, Politics, Culture, and Identity in modern Iran. And um, I haven't read it yet, but it looks great. And uh, so that's one book that I can recommend. Um, You know, someone who I follow who uh, is, works as a informal advisor to the Iranian government's uh, delegation on the, on restoring the Iran nuclear deal is Mohammed Morandi, who is a professor at the University of Tehran Mm -hmm. and who I have, uh, um, interviewed before and who I think is a really brilliant person. Um, now I get criticism from, uh, Iran, some, some Iranian, uh, expats who don't like him or don't like his views because they think he's too close to the government. But I think I, I personally, I mean, first of all, he, he's a friend of mine. I like him and I just like hearing his perspective. It's important to get, uh, everyone's perspective and to hear, you know, the Iranian government's point of view on this and that. And not that Morandi, I think, represents the Iranian government, because he doesn't. He doesn't. He's, you know, he, he knows people. But I just think he's very plugged in. And I think he has, um, I just like his perspective also on the rest of the world. He's a very sharp critic of, uh, of U.S. foreign policy. So um, that's, that's, you know, uh, uh, those are two people I can recommend. But there's many people. Um, on Iran doing, you know, really important work, but that's, you know, that's a book I know that, that, that just came out and it looks great. So it's called the state of resistance, politics, culture, and identity in modern Iran. And the author is Asal Rad and it's A S S A L R A D. Very good. I really appreciate that. And you know, I mean, if, at least it's a starting point, you know, if we find more people, that's great. But, uh, that's fantastic. Uh, I think Sarf was the one that uh, last week asked about a book club. And in that vein, I'm reading a very interesting book called The uh, Chaos Machine by Max. And okay. uh, it deals with the uh, um, social media influence on politics in the world. And it's fascinating. So uh, I'll leave you with that. And thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Nigel.
Okay, now let's go to Ni oh, Nigel F. Brady. Brady, just unmute yourself by hitting the mic button on the bottom right. The mic icon. Hello, Brady. Unmute. All right, we're going to go to Greg, and then we'll come back to you, Brady. Brady. Oh, right when he unmuted, I had already pressed next caller. Sorry about that. Okay, so come back onto the line, Brady. Hey, Greg, how's it going? Unmute yourself, please, by hitting the mic icon at the bottom right. Hi, Greg. Unmute bottom right. Unmute bottom right. Aaron. Okay. Got it. Hi. Hi. About the Nord Stream pipeline, I think it's pretty funny that in your upside down worldview that any U.S. investment anywhere is an attempt at like malevolent American control. But then you don't see anything wrong with the Nord Stream pipeline as a plan for Russian influence because Russian influence is apparently automatically good in your worldview, whereas the reality is that People who were against the Nord Stream pipeline, those people were right. It was dangerous to rely on Russia and allow them power over Western Europe, which the current mass murder and rape of Ukraine has made obvious for anyone with common sense. Aaron, do you want to respond to that? Well, first of all, first of all, I've never said that never all said American that investment is uh, malevolent. Malevolent. I think it's possible to have uh, investment that doesn't, that doesn't intend to, uh, you know, subordinate societies. Can you go off speaker, um, our guests, because there's an echo. Can you just off be on speaker? Hello? Okay. Okay, thanks. Yeah. Uh, and um, look, this was a pipeline agreed to between Russia and Germany. It wasn't imposed on Germany by Russia. Uh, Russia didn't coerce Germany into accepting it. Germany, because of its proximity to Russia and its energy needs, thought that it was in its interest to have this pipeline. And they built it. And it was almost done uh, until the Ukraine crisis emerged and uh, the U.S. succeeded in its long-term plan to kill the pipeline. What business does the U.S. have trying to stop a pipeline in Europe? Uh, does this pipeline threaten American security somehow? No. What it does is it promotes actually integration between Russia and the rest of Europe, which means it promotes peace, in my opinion. Now, you obviously uh, have a different point of view, and you think that the war in Ukraine proves that Russia has bad intentions. I see it differently, and I've gone through the history many times uh, in writing and on here, but basically, uh, to me, this starts with the U.S. expanding NATO, to Russia's borders, despite its pledges at the end of the Soviet Union, and then engineering a coup in Ukraine in 20, or backing a coup in Ukraine in 2014 and fueling a war there over the last eight years that it refused to end. And that, to me, is the background to why Russia invaded. I don't think Russia started this fight. I do think Russia has now tried to end it in a really horrible way. But to say that all this proves that Russia is malevolent and has ill intentions, I think, ignores a lot of background that we've been living in for, for many years now. Yeah, that's the background that the Kremlin pushes and, and um, <laughs> it's counterfactual and, you know, part of the bizarre worldview. But by the way, someone said that you can't influence the war in Ukraine. I want to tell everyone that they can donate to Ukraine through the Ukrainian government website and support the brave people who are defending their country from the... Um, from the orcs who were raping, murdering. And by the way, a lot of news did say burial, mass burial sites. Some said mass graves. There were graves with crosses on them, but they were unmarked. There were also mass graves. Now they're digging them up and finding people with their hands tied behind their back and stuff. Of course, some of them might have been regular war victims. And what's a regular war victim to someone killed by Russia during the war? So it's still a mass burial site of the Ukrainian victims. 
And that's what uh, Russia leaves behind, whether it's there or Bucha, or like an entire carpet-bombed city of Mariupol. That's Russia. That's who Russia is. And that's what they're doing. Slava Ukraini. Okay. And Slava Raytheon to you. To you. Yeah. Okay. Okay. A few. All right. Well. Okay. All right. Well, that, well, that wasn't necessary. Yeah. But, you know, you know, it's cool. Actually, he didn't say he didn't actually say the F word. He just said F you. Yeah. I also it's funny because if that's who Russia is like, do we get to point to does he point to Ukrainian war crimes? And is that who Ukraine is? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think what this caller is, well, you know, he, he's not here anymore, so I don't want to actually argue with him when he's not here to argue. But yeah, there's, again, there's a lot of history here that I think is being ignored, including a war that's been going on, that's been going on for the last eight years inside Ukraine, uh, that, uh, just cannot be swept under the rug. And I think that's what this caller did. But anyway, maybe he'll come back and, uh, share more insights yeah. next week. Okay. Uh, who's up next? Amanda. Spouting Russian talking points and he's spouting State Department talking points, which I'm not saying he is. I'm just saying by the logic being used. Okay. Forever Raytheon. Is that our new greeting now? Slava Slava Raytheon, yes. Uh, Forever Raytheon, yes, yes, yes. So, A+. Um, So, so I'm not wanting to change your show, but I just had a thought. It might be interesting to see what show, what what news stories the Sunday shows miss? And I know that makes yeah. it yeah. not a clip show. Do you know anybody that does something kind of like that on a weekly basis? Because I think that would be helpful, I know, to me. So like a show that's like, these are the stories that should be in the headlines? Right, the, the Sunday shows miss this one. For whatever reason, yeah. usually yeah. probably because they're corporate media. Right. But it would be right. it, it would be another way to lift up the stories that don't get told in the mainstream. Again, I'm not trying I'm not trying to solve a problem that you don't have, but it just occurred yeah. to me. So I wanted to share it with you. That's all. I really appreciate what both of you do. You do some really amazing things, and I'm sure that you don't always get love for it. But there's love here for you. Thanks. For every FU, we get love. I hope you get two, at least, for every FU. <laughs> Thank you. Um, no, that would be an interesting show. The, the stories you missed, the stories you should be paying attention to. Um, okay, uh, Brady. What's up, y'all? How's my mic? All right, so I'm wondering how much y'all think the... Um, Bush family, Clinton family, Epstein network might be involved in what's going on in Ukraine today because I'm just learning that uh, Jeffrey Epstein was actually involved in the Iran-Contra affair. Um, uh, Robert Maxwell, Ghislaine Maxwell's dad, was supplying Israeli passports to Russians back in the day so they could launder money through the New York bank. And uh, Jeffrey Epstein might have triggered the 2008 collapse with Bear Stearns when he tried to withdraw all of his money. Uh, it's, it's speculated that a lot of people saw him uh, attempt to make that withdrawal. And that is one of the things that triggered the collapse. And so I posted some links to those articles down there, but um, I, at least I tried to. Um, here you go. There you go. There's one. But anyway, I'm wondering um, how much you guys speculate, you know, the, the Epstein network might be involved with what's going on in Ukraine today. Uh, also, I mean, I could also point to the Cambridge Analytica network and Emmer data and their role in what's going on in Ukraine for sure. And those people are affiliated, you know, with the same network. Brady, uh, sometimes you ask us questions that are just way too above our head. So... Oh man! Well, I've dropped some links. I got some. I got some uh, articles for you guys, at the very least, and I'll pass the joint. We'll check the links, but you know, yeah. Uh, in terms of the involvement of the Epstein network in Ukraine, I mean, yeah. I mean, I know it sounds crazy, but it's a large it's, network. Hey, but you never know. In this yeah. crazy world, you never know. So, um, so, so, thank you for crazy the world, guys. Thanks for helping yeah, us crazy. get through it. Thank you. All right. Okay, V. Hello. 
Hey. Uh, hi, hey, hi, Aaron. Just want to uh, ask about what what do you guys think about the like uh, obviously the uh, last few days, uh, like a week. I think that it's like a week ago the Queen died, and and obviously the royal family is grieving. Uh, they just had their uh, they just had the Queen's burial. Oh, uh, at the uh, you no, know, uh, they just had the Queen's burial with the sort of uh, media following through, and I just you know uh, it, it's just something that bothers me about this whole you no. Know, like I'm not trying to minimize the the pain that the royal went through, but it's just really weird seeing how the media constant like whenever. Uh, t whenever with the topic of North Korea comes up, um, they always kind of paint it like uh, uh, um, the the uh, the the North Korean government is like this authoritarian dictatorship. But uh, I mean, it, it's like the BBC report about Kim Song Il's death and then like there's this whole thing with uh the crown must cry uh must weep for twelve days or something, which I'm obviously this felt like a scare campaign. But when when it comes to like the BBC as well as Sky News as well as the other British media as well as like the American media um that has been, you know, show lambasting like lambasting the the queen's uh death and then there's this whole you know uh billboards in mcdonald's and stuff like that well i i just wanted to ask about you guys opinions about like how how does like the media so like congratulate between like the sort of um the free the, the 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 criticizing North Korean uh, North Korea for doing the same thing that they're actually doing that they're doing the last few days. Yeah, you know, it, it reminds me too of when Ronald Reagan died. I don't yeah. know if you remember this, but when Reagan died, it was like it, it was like, it was insane. It was like uh, it was like uh, this heavenly figure had passed away and we all had to worship his his coffin it was so weird and yeah and so and then north korea gets mocked for supposedly having a cult of personality and uh you know uh worshiping authority when we do the exact same thing so of course yeah i mean the monarchy is such a ridiculous institution and i and i agree with you people care about it and it means something to them and that's that's their right but Mm -hmm. the, the idea that the rest the, the idea that the rest of us have to take part in the spectacle of mourning the uh, royal figures and just like the tr the fact that we have to call King the uh, like Charles the King it's yeah. just so funny it's I can't do I can't do it without laughing yeah um, so I totally think it's fair to to draw a comparison to um, you know like to point out to point out the hypocrisy of the way North Korea is discussed and when we have very similar behavior here. Yeah, the double standard is remarkable. Yeah. And the difference is, too, by the way, that North Korea went through the destruction of their country, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's how the current North Korean government came about. It's because yeah. I mean, their country was destroyed uh, by the U.S. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. there are quotes from Curtis LeMay, I think his name was, the U.S. general. It talked about destroying like a third or something like that of, of North Korea, basically destroying entire villages and so they went through this horrible event and so no wonder out of that that you know that's that that they were changed and that you know and, and in those kind of out their dams and killing like 20 percent of exactly the Korean yeah. population at that time exactly the Korean war yeah yeah so what excuse do we have for being um for like worshiping our leaders i mean we didn't go through that right. you know um so yeah and if I can just mention that uh, last week's Katie Halper show, uh, when it dedicated it, it was basically all about that, the queen and the worship. And I had on some great guests, some mm -hmm. guys from Britain on, actually three English guests, and then Gerald Horn, Eugene Purrier, um, Mish Raman, and uh, Ahmed Twage, and uh, 
so the podcast and also the the live stream uh, oh. clips. Deal with. Oh. Yeah, cool. I, I'm just sorry. I'm just. I'm sorry. I, I just had a bit of a Google. I mean, it, it's just that uh, our friend sent uh, sent me a message just about like. Uh, there's this account, Queen Elizabeth. Uh, it wasn't like the real account. It's just sending him a DM on Instagram and saying, "Hey, it's me, Queen Elizabeth. I'm not dead. Just sent me to the deserted island so you could be king." And yada yada. yada. And then it's teeth and biscuits. And I'm just, uh, I like, it's just weird. Like there, there would be a very much of a uh, weird bot after the queen's death and then spiral out of like socials and stuff like that yeah it's just you know a spontaneous thing yeah, yeah. sorry <laughs> all right well thanks uh thank you v for checking in and calling in yeah no worries great have a good day yeah you too guys okay al Hi. Hi. Oh, it takes it. There's a big lag in the unmute. But um, so I just had a question. I'm not, I didn't get a chance to watch yet uh, what was in the, the, you know, Monday morning news shows, uh, morning with a U. But uh, <clears throat> so, uh, so I don't know if this was talked about, but like the Duran and Michael Hudson and MVP has talked about it so I just wondered if you all had thoughts about de-dollarization and whether it's really going to be a bad thing for ordinary people or not like might it be good if we can't make all these weapons or <laughs> pollute the planet or you know yeah. like is there a way that it works out <laughs> it sounds great to me if we can't make more weapons uh, and I, you know, but, but I would defer to the experts like Michael Hudson on this. Uh, I mean, what do you think? Oh, I don't, I don't know about, I don't know enough about, you know, economics and that yeah. to really figure it out. But I just wondered if you guys had any thoughts. I mean, I, you know, I'd really like it if, uh, we only had three channels on the TV again, and we didn't need all these chips for everything, and things broke all the time, and, you know, like, I'd be good with that, so. I hear that. I'm waiting for the lithium to run out. But. I hear that. Yeah. Look, and you know, because of the dollar, you know, because, you know, U.S. sanctions would work would be le would be way less destructive if the U.S. dollar wasn't as strong as because so much of the world system is connected to the U.S. run uh, financial system that mm -hmm. it makes it very easy for the U.S. to just cut off entire countries whenever it wants to. Like so, you know, if it wants to like cut off Syria or Cuba or whoever, it can do that because of the power it has over the financial system. Like in Syria, it can stop the rebuilding of Syria, literally, which is what it's done because it can threaten anybody with sanctions. And because people don't want to have their assets frozen, they want to be able to do business with, uh, with, with other people, they don't want to face U.S. sanctions. And the U.S. can do that because of the power of the dollar. So that would be one benefit of the dollar not being so powerful. Um, and, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I mean, whether that's actually a prospect or not, I don't know. I mean, but someone like Michael Hudson is such a good voice on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I have to... Uh take the time to you know hear listen to it and really think it through but yeah thanks very much thank you all right bye, -bye. all righty okay wow we got a lot of people who just joined maria hi maria good morning good morning good morning uh well I mostly just wanted to say that it was absolutely joyous to see the three of you together on Friday. I think I've been waiting for that all year. When you announced last Monday, you teased who the guest was, and you made some comments about original La La La. I knew it was going to be Matt, so I was excited all week. Yeah. 
so. I hope you like that. Well, and I was in mourning uh, again. I guess that wasn't a pun, but I was in mourning when Matt had to do sabbatical stuff, but I'm crazy about Aaron, and I, I couldn't handle it without Aaron, but I want... I want all three of you all the time. <laughs> that was just a terrible tease, but thank you. Thank you for that on Friday. And of course, yeah. You're kind. Thank you. Thank you. And, uh, you know, Matt is working on a book and has a lot of other projects on the go. So, but we'll try to bring him back when he can. And of course, you know, whenever he wants. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I can't wait for his book. When he started teasing that back in January, I got excited about that, too. I think it'll be a wonderful Christmas present, even though it'll come out after Christmas, but whatever. Yeah, well, the next year Christmas, or a solstice present. Yes, exactly. Uh, the last thing I wanted to say really quickly is... You all were talking about Igor Donchenko a little bit on Friday. And I just, I wanted to say thank you that when Igor comes up, you all are even-handed with it. You know, and I appreciate that. He's my best friend from graduate school. Oh. And his life has been a total misery for the last 12 years. FBI harassment, and it just baffles me that you know this is the guy, the guy that caught Putin plagiarizing his PhD dissertation. I mean, he went to high school in New Orleans. I mean, my goodness, people talk about him like, and they don't even bother, you know, to check him out. So, again, thank you for being even handed with that and I hope you continue to do so. Well thank you. Thanks Maria. Thanks for the call. Right. Thank you. Thanks Maria. Okay. Case. Hey, what's going on? Hey, I'm good. You? I'm good. I just wanted to give a case study QB update <laughs> on a clip that I clipped and I want to ask you a question. Um basically I clipped a question uh a clip this morning. It was um Dan um, Bangino, I think his name is. He used to be the Secret Service, um, and now he has a show on Fox News. He had a, a segment with Grant Cardone, who's like, I looked him up, he's worth over $600 million. And basically, if I was to summarize the segment, it was called The Elites Want You to Go Back to Work. <laughs> and they were just trying to say that people are, are lazy now, and there's a culture of after the pandemic people wanting to work remote and people not wanting to work. So I want to ask uh, Katie and you, Aaron, if you think after the, do you think we would uh, kind of transition? Do you see a transition into a lot more remote work? And also like um, we used to do as a parent, we used to do parents, teachers meetings remotely on zoom. And I'm like, I kind of hope we continue that. Cause I, I work at night and uh, I, I that would benefit me. But uh, do you see a, a, a huge culture change in work towards remote work? Yeah, I mean, I think some people are, it seems to me like a lot of people aren't going back. Like a lot of places are not transitioning back to in-person work. Or they're doing like a combination, some kind of hybrid. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I know one of my friends who's a PhD student, um, he is teaching and this whole year and for this semester he's um teaching one person next semester but who knows mm -hmm. what about you Aaron? yeah i know many people who have uh you know uh just stuck with remote work and they like it and mm -hmm. other people who really missed being around other people you know um and um Look, you know, like it's just, it's kind of unfair because some people like who, who work on their laptops, like, like I do, um, we have the option, right. To do, to do remote work. And some people don't, you know, and, uh, and when they, when, when they would really like to, you know, mm -hmm. but, um, yeah, I do think, 
it, it seems to me like this is going to be a new normal, that it's going to be very hard to get people who can do their jobs from home to, to come back to the office. Yeah, I know. For me personally, um, I like being with my family and and my job could be done remotely, definitely, because I work IT help desk. But they they told us to come back in um, after the pandemic. But uh, when we need to fill in for somebody, I'm, I pretty much told them, like, I'm going to do a remote. Like, you're not going to have me come in and fill in and help out with some, another person shift, you know, in person. But um, thank you guys so much. Keep up the great work. And much love to you. Much love to everybody in the chat. Thanks. And everyone goes to Case Study QB on Twitter because he does amazing clips that we all use. All righty. Well. All righty. Well, this is perfect time to end. We've gone through all the callers. Oh, we got one more. Oh, no, we're done. Okay, yeah. So, um, okay, cool. Don't well, forget. Thanks. Substack, uh, usefulidiots.substack.com, youtube.com slash usefulidiots. And uh, we will see you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone.